With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I own it. I did that. Not proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog, Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my very first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And before we meet today's guest, I'm going to give a shameless plug and ask for your help. I've just finished writing my first novel. I am now pitching to literary agents and publishers and what helps me out so 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 much is to show them that I actually have a connection to people that would read this book so if you would like to help me I would be forever grateful for you things that help is if you rate this podcast on iTunes that's a big help if you're comfortable liking the pages on Facebook of the bubble hour and unpickled that really helps but if that doesn't work for your level of anonymity and sobriety I totally understand or you could follow my blog on WordPress which is unpickledblog.com <laughs> if you do any of those things that helps me out hugely um, so that's my my ask of you and hopefully I will have great news in the near future about this book being published. Now that's enough about me. Let's meet today's guest. Today we are meeting a listener named Jennifer who is just rounding out nine months of sobriety and she joins us today to tell us her story and to share a snapshot of what life is like for her today. Hi Jennifer, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi Jean, I'm so happy to be here. Oh, thank you for being on. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on your sobriety. Now, this is the amount of time that you've been sober is coincidentally the amount of time that it takes to have a baby. And that I always think is kind of a significant milestone because it's sort of symbolic of new life and, you know, rebirth. And usually by the time we hit nine months, we're kind of like entering into new levels of awareness. And how are you feeling? Is that how it feels for you? Definitely. It feels like truly at this point, um, life 2.0 for me. Um, I feel like I am living a new life and, um, and just, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole new life for me, truly. That's amazing. Well, tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Okay, so I am 43 years old. Um, I live in Northern California. I am married. My husband and I just celebrated 16 years of marriage on June 7th, and we have three daughters. Um, Let's see, almost 15, 13, and 8, all darling girls. Um, 
I was, I'm originally from the Bay Area, actually. Um, I grew up there, born and raised there. Um, I have, I'm the oldest of two. I have a, a younger brother. Um, uh, my, both my parents are still living, and they still live in the Bay Area. Um, I think a really important part of my story is that my mom's mother, um, well, my mom's from El Salvador, and my mom's mother, who I was very, very, very close to, my grandmother, um, growing up, um, she was a very smart, very beautiful young woman who was um, on her way to study abroad in Paris when she was 17 years old. And she describes walking across the street and meeting a young man, and that forever changed the course of her life. She got married. She actually got pregnant got married, moved to the United States. She had a total of seven kids and um, ended up in a very um, physically, mentally, emotionally abusive marriage. Um, a lot of, al- he was an alcoholic. He actually still is. Um, no one talks to him anymore if that's an indicator of, of what their life was like. So she, growing up for me, was always giving me the message, you are smart, you are strong, you will never need to depend on anybody, you need to have a good career, you get married because you want to, you stay married because you want to, Um, and just really, I heard that message over and over and over again, so that was kind of like the tape that played in my head. Um, So growing up, I as I mentioned, was the oldest. My parents were very blue-collar workers. My dad was an electrician or was an electrician. My mom was a medical records specialist. And um, my brother and I were definitely latchkey kids. Um, They were very focused as well on just making sure that my brother and I um, went to college, had a good job. That was definitely the priority in life. Um, Everything else was kind of secondary, and both of my parents have later on now, several many years later, expressed um, some disappointment with that. There just really wasn't a lot of family time. You know, it was more like, let's work ourselves to the bones that we can buy this home, send our kids to college, and then kind of our job is done. Um, Definitely not a lot of emotional um, connection. Definitely no hugging, no I love you. My dad didn't tell me I love you until I was in my very late 20s. Um, So there was that. Um, I was a complete perfectionist for as long as I can remember. Um, Everything in my life was black and white. And now that I know a little bit about addiction, I can kind of see how that pattern started very, very early in my life. Black and white, perfection, very goal-driven. If I accomplished a goal, I wanted to know what's next, um, what's next, what's next, what's next. Never good enough, always better, better, better. So as far as alcohol goes, um, when I first drank alcohol, I couldn't tell you. Um, my family, being from El Salvador, it was kind of like accepted that you gave kids Kahlua and milk. Like that's just what kids have. Everybody drank and you know, you gave the kids Kahlua and milk. My my paternal grandmother um, drank scotch and milk. Oh, and my dad describes, you know, her drink would be out, and I would take a sip at it, sip of it from a very young age, and she would just laugh. So as far as like first tasting alcohol, that would be 
you know, many, many years ago. Um, in high school, um, I knew that I wanted to be a nurse from the age of 12. My uh, paternal grandmother was a nurse. My aunt was a nurse. I knew that I wanted to be a nurse. My mother really wanted me to be a physician, but I was determined to be a nurse. And so I got all my straight A's, good grades. This is what I'm going to do. Um, I was never good at sports, but I found a love for dance. And so I um, took ballet and jazz and tap. And again, I really wanted to be the best dancer that I could be. Um, and it's kind of sad looking back on it now. And I still do. I love to dance. Um, but I really, it was kind of a form of, of self-induced torture. I wanted to be thinner. I wanted to be the best all the time. And so I would just really, um, you know, that's not good enough. This isn't good enough. So I was dancing five days a week. And at some point in my early teens, I figured out I wanted to be thinner. And so I kind of played with abusing laxatives, um, developed some bulimia, and that kind of went on for several, well, for, for several years until my early 20s. So in high school, um, there really wasn't a lot of drinking. It was kind of drinking here and there um, until I was about a sophomore in high school. I still was a perfect student, you know, no real, um, I wasn't like a bad kid or anything. My parents, you know, I got the good grades, so it all was fall. Um, there was one night in high school I was a sophomore, and my best friend and I decided to sneak out and go hang out with our boyfriends, and um, they had a bottle of Cuddy Sark, Ugh. and um, I thought, you know, they were drinking, and I just thought, well, I could do this, and I can do it better than they can, because that was my, <laughs> I don't know, I was just like, I could, you know, I can do it better, so I drank, and I drank, and I drank, and I blacked out. And all I remember is being with my boyfriend and having him say, are you okay with what happened? And I didn't remember what happened. And just saying, yeah, yeah, totally, like, sure. I did. And I'm just really not addressing it um, and just kind of tucking it under the rug and um, kind of just saying, you know, that's what happens. You go out, you have fun. So I was pretty young. Um, and then high school kind of went on. Graduated from high school, started immediately that summer. I was going to take my prerequisites for nursing school, which I did. Did really, really well. I loved all of it. Loved anatomy and physiology. Started volunteering in a hospital. I got into nursing school. Um, and that's, you know, college is college. Nursing is a really difficult um, degree. And, you know, we would work really hard, study really hard on the weekends, binge drink and, you know, beers and stuff. But didn't really, it wasn't really out of the ordinary in the college environment. Um, I met or I, I saw a man, a young man from across the way that I definitely knew I was interested in and being a person of determination and um, figuring out, you know, how I was going to get what I wanted. I, I stalked him. <laughs> My roommate said, oh, that guy's in my physiology class. And so even though I had already taken physiology in junior college, I proceeded to go to the physiology class, figure exactly what his schedule was, and follow him around for two weeks until he finally came up to me and said, did you want to go out on a date? Because <laughs> you've, been, you've been following me around. So um, <laughs> we dated for, 
dated for um, the rest of nursing school. He was he was actually a couple of years older than me, so he had graduated, and we continued to date. And I kind of got to the point where he was like, you know, uh, this is so telling of, of how much he knows me and knew me back then. He said, you know, I know I'm ready to get married, and I know that you're not. So when you're done running amok and having a good time, you let me know. And so I did. I graduated from nursing school. I uh, moved in with uh, another nurse had a great time. You know, we worked our three 12-hour shifts, and then we just had a great time. I mean, four days off, and with some money in your pocketbook, we were off to Cabo. We would go to San Francisco, party, dance, all the cool stuff, eat out in these fabulous restaurants. Um, and alcohol was always there. It wasn't really over the top. It was, you know, that was just kind of what you did. You um Worked hard, play hard was kind of my motto, you know, as long as I could work and, and do a good job. And I did. I did a great job. I I was an ICU nurse. Um, I decided to make a switch from adult ICU to pediatric ICU, which was really difficult. And I look back on it now, and, you know, I was still really young. It was in my early 20s dealing with some really difficult situations, you know, with young children. Um and getting off work and not really being able to process emotionally what was happening, not really having the tools to process um, walking parents through the death of their child, which is really what happens. That's what nurses do. Physicians most often are not really part of that process. Um, you know, they they if that's what's inevitable, it's often that those last few moments that are put on the nurse to um, to help the parents with. So I really developed this ability or this, I guess it's just a coping mechanism of not really feeling feelings. Like I distinctly remember going to the movies and seeing a sad movie and looking around at people crying and I would be like, why are they crying? Like I just didn't understand. I just developed this numbness that um, even without alcohol that I just really didn't, cry or I didn't really feel a lot of emotions. So there's that. So um, party time was over and I did go eventually go back and, and, and got in contact with my now husband and we rekindled our relationship and got married. And in the Bay Area, the prices, the cost of living is just completely outrageous. Um, and as I mentioned, I'm a nurse and he works in law enforcement and there was just no way um, we had some pretty high ideals of how we wanted to raise our family. Um, he wanted, we both wanted me to not work full time and to be at home with any kids that we might have at least most of the time. So we moved, um, to a suburb of Sacramento where the cost of living was better. He could work pretty much anywhere in the state of California. So that worked well. And, you know, looking back on it, it was, that was really hard. I left my parents, I left my family, I left my friends, and basically moved a good two and a half hours away. I didn't know anybody. I was just with my husband and pretty much starting, you know, from the beginning. Um, but I definitely had my checklist. Um, so now we're married. So now we need to buy a house. Housing market's really hot out here. So let's, you know, get a house. You got a house. Moved in. Um, now I need to get pregnant, so 
we got we were married in June of 2003. I was pregnant by October. Um, I got a job here and working as a recovery room nurse. Things were going, you know, all according to my grand plan. Um, so that was, uh, you know, how things were supposed to go. And I made friends with other moms through, um, through. I'm trying to. Oh, I know they had a thing at the hospital. It was like, like a a thing where new moms could come and kind of talk about, you know their woes and their joys of parent, of mothering and just to connect new moms. And it a lot of us have continued to maintain um, relationships, but it always seemed like a lot of the play dates or quote-unquote play dates, I mean, they're babies, um, I just had a hard time kind of connecting with people. I wasn't really sure um, how to be myself. I mean, we had our babies. That was our common bond. And then those friendships then kind of pro- developed and, we always seem to do Thumbs Night Out, which is, you know, based solely as an excuse to go out and drink, and um, it seems like everything involved alcohol. So, I mean, I've always said, give me a couple of glasses of wine, and I could be friends with anybody. So, um, so my oldest daughter was 13 months old, and I was still nursing her, and I hadn't had a period yet and then <laughs> along came our surprise our um our second daughter grace so Ava was only 13 months old and I was pregnant again totally by surprise more than happy to be pregnant but it was just I wasn't necessarily planning on having kids that close so that was all fine in DND um again we had really high standards for ourselves I um my husband was working basically from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m., and then I was working three days a week from 12.30 p.m. to 11 um, in the hopes that the kids would only have to have childcare for a couple of hours, which on paper sounds great, but when you actually do it, you're exhausted. You know, you have these two kids, and you're working, and no one's really sleeping all that much. So I definitely was struggling with, not meeting my own standards of how I wanted to be a mom. Like I always felt like, you know, this is what I should be doing. I should be reading to them every single night. Um, They certainly can't have any sugar or whatever, you know, just is really, um, my house has to be perfect, all these things. And I was just driving myself crazy. Um, So, you know, we, at that point, alcohol like we would share a bottle of wine now and again I mean which seems so foreign the concept of actually sharing a bottle of wine with somebody or we would have a glass and leave the bottle on the the counter once in a blue moon it was not a regular thing Um, and then I decided that um, I wanted to have another baby and John was really not um, all that keen on the idea but (laughs) he he always kind of says we both knew that you'd get your way. So I got pregnant in 2009, um, was really, really thrilled. Um, and about 14 weeks into the pregnancy, I had a miscarriage. And that was really the first kind of a, a big um, signpost in my alcoholism. Um, I was so, I was just devastated. I was devastated emotionally, and I didn't really recognize that the grief that I was feeling was probably more than than I could really process. Um, 
In fact, when I knew that I was miscarrying, um, I had the ultrasound done, you know, I was miscarrying, and I scheduled the DMC, and I just felt like, well, if I can't, if I'm not pregnant anymore, then I must, then I should just go drink. So, you know, I think my husband and his, he just felt sad for me and, you know, was going to just kind of let that go. So the DMC, and even then, this is in 2009, the doctor was like, you know, in the recovery room, he was, she was telling him she was bleeding a lot and I'm really not sure why. Well, it was because I was drinking so much um, for the past couple of days before that. So, so I, um, but I do remember the doctor or the nurse practitioner actually telling me, um, I said, how am I going to tell my daughters this? They were six and four at the time. And she said, you know, this is really an opportunity for you to, to, to show your daughters that it's okay to cry and it's okay to feel grief. And I always remembered that because it's exactly what I did not do. I um, was very depressed. I um, really wasn't processing it at all. So in my infinite wisdom, I was, I said, let's go on a cruise. Like let's, <laughs> let's go on a cruise. And so I put all of my effort into planning a wonderful cruise, which she did go on, which of course solves nothing. Um, and on that cruise, I just said, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go through that again. I don't want to have any more kids. And my husband said, no, 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 we, you know, we can't end on this note. So I did end up getting pregnant again. And, and that's why there's that kind of large gap between our daughters. Um, so with her, we decided that we needed a bigger house. So um, we moved to, we gained like a thousand square feet in a pool. And that really, so she wasn't even a year old yet, and um, I really began feelings of overwhelm at that point. Um, having this bigger home, these three kids, and trying to just manage my home, I really, overwhelm is really the only word that I could describe. I would always feel like when I was at home, there's always something more that had to be done, and I never knew when to turn it off. I mean, my husband would say, you know, Jen, you really it's, you know, eight o'clock at night. Oh, but I've got to finish this laundry. I have to do this. I have to do that. And I would be so out of touch with my own feelings of physical fatigue or emotional fatigue that I could just press through. And these feelings of, you know, that ability to push through things that had served me so well and other arenas like exercise or what have you really became very toxic to me. Um, and I started to use drinking as, like, an off button, like, you know, because, of course, that's what everybody tells you. That's what moms do. You deserve your wine. But um, outside of, quote, unquote, social drinking, I started drinking alone at home. Um, and I didn't really see a problem with that. I I was always the kind of person that had the reaction to alcohol um, now that I am a little bit have a little bit more knowledge about addiction, I think that this physiological reaction is quite common where you feel energized. Um, so if I felt fatigued and I had a couple glasses of wine, I was not ready to go to sleep. I felt energized and I could do things that I would otherwise deem as boring quite well. Like I could whip through three loads of laundry and make three lunches or whatever, whatever it was that I needed to do. Um, and so from... 2000, let's see, that was about 2010. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry, 2000, my, my daughter, yeah, it was about 2010. So 
you know, I was just, I kind of call that like my balance year. Like I knew what I needed, like how much wine I could have without being a disaster and still feeling just relaxed and not feeling um, anxious and overwhelmed. Um, What ended up happening, and this is really, it's a little bit difficult for me to talk about still. Um, It was 2010 and my two older daughters were both playing soccer and um, I was cleaning, I was cleaning the kitchen and my husband was on the couch watching a football game and they both had games and both of my daughters had games at the same time. So we had agreed that each of us would take one to um, their game. And I was really just talking about this is really, it's, um, it seems so silly, but in my mind at the time, it was just so real. I was mad at him because I had asked him to vacuum upstairs and he was really like, hello, I'm trying to watch a football game, and we have to go to the soccer game. We'll do it later. And I was so angry that I, like, drank at him. I drank at him because I couldn't communicate with him, and I think there were some other things going on as well. But um, unfortunately, I got in the car with my daughter, my oldest daughter, and drank and drove her intoxicated. And that was just, that's just a huge um, marker in my memory as far as, like, despite being drunk, I remember everything about that, about her being really scared, calling my husband. Um, I damaged the side of the car. I I mean, I, it's so hard to imagine what must have been going through his head. I know he was completely and rightfully so, just freaking out and coming home and him just being in a state of shock. Like, I cannot believe that you would do this. And me, obviously, just feeling, I can't believe I would do that either. I don't even know how that happened. Like, how could somebody do that? I mean, the, in, in AA, you know, you talk about the word insanity, which a lot of people, I think it really turns them off because they don't want to be deemed insane. But truly, that is like insanity. Like you're doing something that you can't even believe that she would do. So then the insanity kind of just went on, um, you know, doing something over and over again and expecting different results. Of course, they swore to my daughter that I that nothing like that would ever happen again. And Oh, my gosh, that's just, you know. And I don't think we ever really processed it as a family. You know, it was um, very shameful and um, just something that I knew that I had made an indelible mark on my daughter, and um, I just it just kind of sat there. So I went on and um, went on from that, and from that time on, from 2010 to. 2018, um, you know, drinking was just kind of in and out of my life. I learned um, just the kind of the typical things, like, you know, we would go to an event, I would need to have a couple of drinks before going to the event, or I would be, you know, bring wine because there always had to be enough. Um, I... I would have periods of drinking a lot. My husband would talk to me about it, and I would, you know, okay, okay, I'll peel back. I did the kind of the the typical, I'm only going to drink on the weekends, I'm only going to have this much, all those mental gymnastics that are just so incredibly exhausting. 
Um, I even circled days on my calendar that I was going to allow myself to drink, and, um, and of course, it just never worked out. So I decided that I needed to go to therapy. Um, so I would go, I, I met a, with a therapist, I would have drinks before, which is like, <laughs> kind of says very telling, um, but when it, but the nuts and bolts of that were that was that I could now I see in hindsight that she was um, um, also an alcoholic and she was very very passionate about me stopping drinking almost to the point of it being like motherly like you have to, you are this is a progressive disease something terrible is going to happen you can't even see what you're doing you are out of control and and I was like, well, no one's going to tell me what to do. I mean, that's great. We're not here to talk about drinking. We're here to talk about issues with my childhood and with my parents and with my daughter, but we're not here to talk about that. So um, that kind of, I I put an abrupt end to that um, because that was just clearly going nowhere. I mean, here she was telling me to to stop drinking. I mean, that's, that's crazy. So, um, I kind of just entered the the slow the slow demise, which became very rapid. Um, I definitely had a lot of self loathing. Um, really, I think from you know the incident with my daughter that I just could not get past. But then again, insanity. Here I was, you know, drinking, and I. Um, was you know we'd have I'd have arguments with my husband I would yell at my kids and I couldn't put two and two together that really the alcohol was was the uh, the main issue. Um, towards the end, I thought that I could think myself out of this, so I got um, oh and back in like 2014 I I joined the BFB when it was still a Yahoo um, account. I found. Um, Ellie's old blog, One Crafty Mother Online. Like, I was definitely aware that sobriety was, like, out there. And I was, I think I call it, like, step zero, you know, kind of just experimenting and seeing, like, okay, how can you live without alcohol? Because I really couldn't imagine it. Um, but I knew that certainly there were people out there that could. Um, so I got this Naked Mind, and I read this Naked Mind, loved that book. Um, so much great information, and I started listening to um, her podcast. I One thing that really stuck out in my mind, she talked about the 30-day alcohol-free challenge, and I remember her saying, if you can't go 30 days without alcohol, you might consider the fact that you need to be physically separated from it. And immediately I was like, no, but it stuck. Someplace deep in my gut, I heard that, and I was like, oh, boy, okay. So I definitely, and that concept of cognitive dissonance, you know, I know that I want to live life this way, but I don't know how to do it. I absolutely have no idea. And in the meantime, I am still proceeding to live life. Um, nobody, you know, we, are, we um, would have parties, we'd go to parties. I don't think people would necessarily say like, oh my gosh, she's a disaster. Like I would go to work and, and be fine. Um, but I started blacking out. Um, at home and, you know, I may sit down, have wine, watch a movie, and pass out. Um, I tried going to AA. 
that wasn't going to work for me because these people were just simply not like me. I mean, I would listen to their stories and nothing, this is just not for me. It's just not for me. Um, and so um, my parents come to visit every couple, probably like once a month. And I, w- I noticed that I was drinking a lot before I knew that they were coming. And um, they began to see a pattern and called me out on it. And I was so, I was livid. I was absolutely livid. No one is going to call me anything. You're not going to tell me I'm this, blah, 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 blah. So in, ter- in turn, I would call them to hash out resentments with them while I was drinking, um, which was, of course, very productive. Um, I have always been into physical fitness, exercise, um, sometimes to the point of, of you know, of using it as a way to punish myself. But um, in those couple of years, I gained, well, mostly towards the end, I gained 35 pounds. I'm only 5'2". Um, I started to develop hypertension. I had to go on high blood pressure medicine. Um, I had to have a big abdominal surgery. I had a hernia and some other things going on. And I knew that the recovery was going to be a lot of not able to exercise. But, so you're taking away, like, the one thing that I, you know, I am maintaining my my undiagnosed depression with, and so I was very, very paranoid about that. And so I told my doctor, and she goes, okay, we'll put you on this antidepressant. Keep continuing to drink um, um, and not really knowing why the antidepressant wasn't working. Um, so I had the surgery, and that was just really, really difficult, being pretty much stuck in a chair and not able to move. And I just couldn't sit still, but I had to sit still. So I just was going to go out of my mind. Um, taking pain medicine and still drinking, and it, I was just a disaster. Um, so I was just really unable to just get off the hamster wheel. I got recovered from the surgery, um, and had another incident of of drinking. I went out to lunch with a friend. We had wine together with lunch. Um, I had drank before. I had a daughter to pick up at school, and that's my youngest daughter. I picked her up, and um, my and she got in the car, and she just said, "Have you had wine?" She's only eight years old. So I came home that day, and my poor husband was that he just put his foot down. He said, "That's it. I'm done. You, you have got to get control of yourself." I, I think you know now he acknowledges how much um, codependence was going on, enabling. Um, but he said, "You just can't drive the kids anymore. I can't allow that to happen. I work in law enforcement. This isn't. This is insane." Like, you and I are both mandated reporters, and you are putting our children's lives at risk. So I'm forbidden from driving my kids. So what does that mean for me? Oh, I can drink all I want. I mean, I was so humiliated um, by the fact that my in-laws, who live probably 15 or 20 minutes away from me, had to get up at 6.30 in the morning because my husband was already at work to come pick up my kids and and bring them to school. That was beyond shameful and humiliating. So to deal with it, I drank. A um, couple of days into that routine, um, I called, I just called my mom and I just said, I, I need help. I, I can't, I don't know what to do. I can't not drink and I can't continue. I'm, you know, I was, 
thinking about how my my family's life would be better without me um and just you know going down that path and um my husband finally got on the phone and was like okay i found this i found a rehab facility for you they have a bed for you pack your stuff let's go like you i you i don't know what you know i just this feeling of just not knowing where else to go and so now he describes dropping me off there as like the most helpless that he's ever felt he's like i just i didn't want to leave you there but i knew that i had no other choice and so in i stayed there for two weeks and it was um i'm just so grateful to have had that opportunity i you know, I don't think anybody ever says, gee, when I grow up, I hope I can be an alcoholic and go to rehab. But it was two full weeks of, first of all, as I mentioned, what she said, what Annie Grace said in the podcast of truly being physically separated from alcohol and really being able to evaluate and focus just on alcohol as a symptom and really what is going, what was going on um, with you know, inside of me, what was, what was all this, what was everything that was, that I was thinking that alcohol was the answer to. Um, and when I was in inpatient, I, uh, my parents actually came, they had a family night and my mom, I remember her crying saying, I can't believe that with these beautiful girls that she would do something like this, that she cannot stop drinking for them. And what I learned, Jean, and the rehab and over the past nine months is that sustained sobriety comes from me wanting to do it for myself. Um, over the becoming a mom and really letting those lines blur of who I am and defining myself as a mother and not really knowing who I am and just throwing myself into that role made me just lose myself. And so realizing that I am worthy of sobriety, that um, I pray that I can, you know, someday, and I will never forget my counselor saying this, you're raising these beautiful girls to leave you. They're going to be adults. And so if you don't believe that you're worthy of recovery, it's not going to be something that's sustained. Um, And the other, like, nugget that she told me that I try to tell myself every day is – she said, you just have to remember the triangle. The top is God and sobriety. Next is your marriage. Then comes your kids. Everything else is after that. And that was um, really powerful for me. So I spent two weeks there. My darling husband made it work for two weeks. He he, um, he just said, you stay here as long as you need to. I will figure this out. He continued to work, get her, figure out how to the kids around and everything so that was all wonderful i came home i did two weeks in an intensive outpatient setting um and yeah i was scared i mean i was scared to come out of of this little bubble and back into real life so i went back to work no one knew why i was gone um except my, you know, my close family, um, all my coworkers, even to this day, are just like, you know, they kind of just looked at me and, huh, what, you know, what happened? So, um, yeah, that's, and so that was, 
back in October, and um, now I um, I really appreciate your your term patchwork recovery because one of the the big things I think about what originally turned me off about going to AA meetings was you know feeling like those people and me and I'm not that and now that now I realize that a lot of that is my addictive brain telling me that I'm different, telling me that I'm special. Um, So AA has actually turned out to be a wonderful program. I I have a sponsor. It took me several times of of asking women to actually nail down a sponsor. And it wasn't – a lot of it was scheduling. I have a a weird work schedule. Um, A couple women were like, you know, I'd love to, but I have too many sponsees. And that – you know that character um that's a that's a plus you know I was determined I was determined to find somebody and I finally said and you know we're kind of she lives a different life than me she's younger than I am she doesn't have kids but we worked the steps together and I can honestly say that what is different for me after so many years of sort of dancing with the idea of sobriety is I truly surrender my surrender and my willingness have been so imperative um, in in maintaining my sobriety and and finding joy in it, and not finding not feeling like this is something that's being taken away. I truly look at the word surrender as a beautiful thing. Um, I think the old me would say, I "Never surrender. I never surrender to anything. I am not powerless over anything." But now that I have explored that concept in sobriety of what it means to be powerless, what it means to surrender, I am truly powerless over mostly everything. And that is actually a wonderful thing. I don't need to to control everything that's happening around me. Um, I don't need to have my daughters do chores and run around behind them and make sure that they're doing it right. Raising them to be adults and accepting that powerlessness of I am your mother, I love you, I'm here for you, and guide them and and listen to them. But really, the adults that they become is not something that I am in control of has been incredibly freeing. Um, I just this past couple months started sponsoring women, and I now see why – People are so, you know, I always used to hear, like, the joy of working with another alcoholic. I don't get that. But um, I think feeling so happy and so grateful to be where I am, I I want to share that with other women. And I'm, after thinking about it and praying for, you know, praying about it, I want, that's why I emailed you. I've heard so many guests on your show say things that, I knew took so much courage to say, and I heard them, and I, you know, they really spoke to me, and I, I just want to make myself available as a vessel for somebody, if somebody's in that place, that they're ready to, to find sobriety or ready to explore it. Um, I want to be supportive in that way. Um, I think that's, that's, really the scoop of my story. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, I want to talk a little bit more. Um, I'm also thinking of those listeners that are maybe 
at the sober curious stage, at the research stage, you know, they're they're thinking about quitting or maybe they've quit, but it's not how they thought it would be. So I wanted I wanna dig in a little bit to your experience in rehab, both inpatient and outpatient, because you did both, right? Did I understand that correctly? Yes. Okay. So for some people, um, you know, the the good old Amy Winehouse song, like, rehab, no, 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 right? <laughs> and um, it seems like, you know, the ultimate shame or the ultimate punishment. The more I do the show, I've heard lots of people talk about it as being a really wonderful experience. And for many people, it's the first time in their life where they've truly looked after themselves. What were some of the positives that you experienced in your two weeks in rehab? Um, I would say, yeah, I can definitely see that the first, you know, time to look after yourself. Absolutely. Um, I think learning tools of um, communication, of boundaries, um, I think, you know, going in that codependent realm, loss of boundaries um, is huge. Um, Identifying that as an adult, woman, I um, can choose the things to say yes to. I can choose the things to say no to. Um, That was huge. Um, What else? This is going to sound, it sounds like a negative, but it's really a positive. Being away from a family um, for that period of time really changed my view of how blessed I am to have a wonderful husband and have wonderful daughters and be able to live a pretty nice life. Um, I one of, the, one of the other huge positives that I took away from that two weeks, because it wasn't just an alcohol-based rehab. There were um, different varieties of drugs and people who had been there several times. Um, I think both personally and professionally, it took away a lot of the judgment of that I have of, Um, or may have had an addiction. I think that in medicine we um, see people in addiction and um, judge them. You know, oh, here she is again, or or what have you, or, gee, I'm not like that guy under the bridge. Well, I think that you can look around and really see the the progression. It's there. It's possible for everybody, um, myself included. I mean, I was on a trajectory that was simply not going to end well. So I think it gave me a lot of humility, um, and that's a humility that I strive to keep on a daily basis, that there, you know, in AI we say, yet is you're eligible to. Um, I, I don't separate myself from anybody in addiction, I think that it is the great, um, the great equalizer. Um, you know, they say, Yale or jail. And, um, and I, I heard that from somebody in rehab, one of my counselors, we were talking about, I was talking about how, you know, life looks good on the outside. And, and he said, you know, I've done this for such a long time. And I have to tell you that the worst cases of addiction that I've ever seen are behind the gates because you have, the means to keep your addiction going and you have people to cover for you to enable you and to not, and just to live in denial. So So behind the gates, you mean wealthier people that that live? Yeah. Like living in a gated Mm -hmm. community. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which ironically Uh, I do. And he didn't know that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> Those old timers um, have a way of hitting home. <laughs> exactly. So I think that gift is for me, humility, that I, um, like I said, I strive to, I, I guess I just never want to feel I've got this. You know, I, I always, I my, my um, daily goal is just to, you know, have that humility and to remember that I, those things are possible and they always will be. Um, I don't like to think of myself as a recovered alcoholic. To me, the door is closed on that aspect of my personality, that aspect of who I am. It certainly could be opened at any time. Um, I just got back from a cruise. Oh, I left that little part out of the story too. Um, A couple of years ago, actually, well, it was a year and a half ago, my mother um, was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, which was another reason that I simply couldn't get sober because how could anybody survive their mother's death sober? I mean, this was just not going to happen. So um, after finding sobriety and, um, you know, that was something that brought her a lot of joy. She doesn't talk about it really because, as I mentioned, you know, not a lot of feelings, not a lot of communication on that level. But she said, I really want to go. I want to take you guys, meaning my brother, myself, and our families on a cruise. So we actually literally just got back at 4.30 this morning. Um, oh. we, <laughs> wait, that was not that was not a plan. Um, she, we flew to Florida and had really my first sober vacation um, in I, I, years. In years, and I had an absolutely wonderful time. Went to Universal Studios for three days, and then went on the cruise. And I wasn't really worried, you know. Of course, there's tons and tons of alcohol there, and I wasn't really worried about drinking. I was really worried—not worried, just really learning how to exercise my boundaries. You know, your family of origin can be so triggering um, in different ways. Um, you know, going on—it's one thing to be on the cruise ship, and everyone's kind of doing their own thing, but um, being on excursions, everybody together, and um, it was it was interesting. But I was able to really use my toolbox. I brought my um, my phone. I had my podcast downloaded. I could sit on the beach and watch my girls and listen to things. And I had um, you know lots of different mocktails lined up. I even went to a friends of Bill W meeting on the ship, which was absolutely so beautiful. It was. You know, I was kind of slinking past the, the location, looking like who's going to show up, and um, and let's see, four other people did from all different walks of life, and we just had an absolute ball. Um, I'm going to. ended to, up happening? To, to explain that that the it's kind of a code word. So when you're on a cruise or at a resort, and they hand out the activity calendar of all the things that are happening, friends of Bill W is is code word for an AA meeting because Bill W is the founder of AA. So if you are on vacation somewhere and you're feeling super triggered, look for that or go to the front desk and say, is there a friends of Bill W meeting? Because that is code word for an AA meeting. And what, I mean, for someone who has never been to a meeting before, what an opportunity, right, to go and do that. But also for someone who's in a program, what a gift to be able to have it with you wherever you're going. Absolutely. It was it was really, it was just so um, 
you know, reaffirming. I wasn't feeling triggered to drink. It was just really, it's just like that feeling of community, of being with your people. You know, you just feel like, yeah, this, this person gets it. You know, you despite, like, externally, we all look so different, and we all have different stories, but we all have that connection. It was just so wonderful. Um, That's lovely. It was great, and it was a great vacation. We spent time together with my mom and danced and took pictures, and it was really, really lovely. Um, And then I just have to share that at the end, you know, I hadn't felt – I really have have not felt triggered a lot during my sobriety to actually drink. Um, I – if I'm doing my um, sleeping when I'm tired, exercising – going to meetings, um, doing the things that I know that I need to do to stay sober. I, I, it doesn't, it's not um, really on the board for me. Yesterday at the airport, we got to, our flight was supposed to leave at 1. We ended up, we're supposed to be home yesterday at 7 p.m. We got home at 4.30 a.m. Um, and that was just due to, we lit weather. We ended up boarding the same plane twice. We spent four hours in on a plane. Airports have always been very, very that's like the one place, but I don't know what it is about an airport, but, you know, the availability of alcohol, you're trapped there, I have no idea. But I did get on our little Facebook secret group, and it was just so grateful to have that and just check in and say, hey, I'm in this airport, I have no idea when I'm getting home, just wanted to make that connection, and I'm just so grateful for that and for really um, – you know, I am. I do believe in AA, but just all the the different ways that there are to get sober. Um, I, I I am just mesmerized by it. Um, oh. I, I just the podcast I listen, of course, to the Bubble Hour and a couple more. You know, I spend a lot of time in the car driving to and from work, and I just think that there's this whole wealth of information available, and that's why I kind of I really go back and forth with. Um, I don't, I really don't have a problem talking about my sobriety and my recovery. And I I read this in The Gift of Imperfection by Brené Brown, that the people that that you share your story with need to have earned the right to hear it. So I'm not um, really going to talk to you about it to people who don't really, you know, like, that's great. But I do, um, I guess I just feel like I know that there's other people suffering or other women that are, you know, thinking about it. And I, um, I, I, I really feel like I want to make that available for other women. And so you were talking earlier about the, you know, the anonymity of AA. And I just, I really go back and forth about that because, um, I, um, I still, I want I want the stigma to go away, you know. I, I I want that to just be more accessible for people because I really do think that if I could go back and talk to that person that was drinking alone at home and wondering what was wrong with her, and I could show her like that this life is possible and this life is beyond. You know, they used to say beyond your wildest dreams, and I would say, yeah, right, ha ha ha. But it really is. I mean the repair that I have had in my relationship with my daughters has been phenomenal. My oldest daughter, we danced on the ship. We talk all the time. um, And this is something that has been a process. We have 
And I remember in rehab, my counselor saying, your your relationship with your daughters will be closer than it ever could have been. And I didn't believe it. And it it is. It truly, genuinely is. Um, I am able to listen. I mean, that's what people want. People want to be heard. I'm able to listen to my daughters without judgment. And um, it, I just really feel passionate that I just feel like if women could see or people could see that life can be better, you know, they might be more willing to give it a shot. That is so lovely. I can hear just in in your voice the joy that you have in recovery. And I feel like that's one of the most important reasons why we do this show is to break that stigma, as you were saying, of thinking like this is going to be a life of of lack and of disappointment and of um, restriction and, you know, all of these negative things that we think are going to happen when we give up alcohol. And w- once we get some new habits formed and just just get our catch our stride again, we, we really are able to experience joy that we kind of lose when we're lost in addiction. Don't you think that really it's the return of joy that makes it so worthwhile? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and I think on a physical level, you know, what is happening in your brain, um, really, you know, you lose so much, your ability to function on a scientific level emotionally becomes very blunted. So with the return of that, and as he said, you know, developing new habits, change is always scary. You know, the first I left um, rehab, I went to um, – we live in a, a neighborhood that everyone gets together for Halloween and the parents all drink. And I was scared. I was, I was, I wasn't not at all ready to share my sobriety with anybody, but I, I, I did it. And, you know, and then came Thanksgiving and Christmas and all these other things. Like you said, it's just, it's just these new habits that for me, I have to remind myself that I deserve that. I deserve to take my 15 minutes every morning to read my daily reflections and write my five things that I am grateful for. Um, and yes, it definitely can be very, very scary, but, um, but it is so worth it. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story today. This brings us to the end of our hour. So before I let you go, I just want to let listeners know because you've sort of, um, offered to be a resource for people that if, if listeners want to um, reach out to you, they can write to me at thebubblehour at gmail.com, and then I'll forward their emails on to you. Jennifer, does that sound good to you? I would love that. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, we've made some really great connections with people this way, um, and sometimes just to just to you know, hear that feedback from people is really powerful for for both ends. So um, definitely, feel free to to write, listeners, if you would like to um, get in touch with Jen and Jennifer and share your feedback with her. I thank you so so much for sharing your story, and I just I celebrate your new life with you and that um, that you went and did and invested in yourself and found yourself again. I'm just, I'm so happy for you. And I thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Jane. Thanks. And so listeners, that's everything for this week. Um, Don't forget that at the start of July, um, we're in 2019, if you're listening in the future, um, in 2000 and sorry, in July, I'm going to be posting uh, a series of interviews I'm doing um, with the 
founders of this show, so Lisa, Ellie, Amanda, and Catherine, all the old co-hosts, will I'll be doing an hour with each of them. I'm going to be posting those in early July so that you can binge listen while I'm away on vacation. So I hope you're looking forward to that as much as I am. Jennifer, thank you again. That's it for this week, everyone. Until next time, take good care. I didn't, not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back A little dignity, not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind You're strong just cause you keep it on the side It just stays and waits there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see oh, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.